Uh, we are in our study on Romans, and we're in Romans chapter 10. Uh, two weeks ago, I finished chapter 9, covered the first few verses of chapter 10. Let me remind you, in dealing with the book of Romans, Paul has never been to Rome. He's writing this letter, laying out uh, some things, primarily his, his doctrinal positions. He's kind of giving his manifesto, so to speak, of faith in Christ. And in doing so, uh, in the book of Romans, we get some of the clearest teachings of Paul, especially concerning salvation. And as, as we have seen uh, so far, he spends a, a large amount of time early on in his book dealing with the nature of sin. We are all sinners. The Jews are sinners. The Gentiles are sinners. People who have never heard of Christ, never heard of the law, they are sinners because they have violated the understanding of who God is. They have worshipped false gods, pagan gods. They've made idols. There is that sense of general rebellion against God and the things that are upon their heart, the moral right and wrong that all of us knows. They have violated that as well. And uh, in dealing with sin extensively, he sets out that we are made right or declared right by God. We are justified by God through faith in Christ. It means we are declared right. And then he goes on the process of making us right, of sanctifying us and the life that we live. We have seen uh, that uh, it is through God's grace and only God's grace that we are saved. We've seen that in the sermons the last couple weeks as well. We have seen that uh, the faith that we have is not a faith that we generate. It is a faith that comes uh, fundamentally, first and foremost, from the gift of God. But it's a faith, nonetheless, that we must exhibit, a faith that we must in some way have in serving our Lord. We come then to the ninth chapter. In the ninth and tenth and eleventh chapters, I have shared before, it almost seems like Paul speaks parenthetically. Chapter 8 through chapter 12 is a nice, smooth thought. Paul does this all the time. Uh, he's talking about something, and I don't think it's unintentional. I think it's an inten- it is an intentional thing. He then looks like he's going in another direction to cover something, and then he gets back to what he's really originally talking about. Uh, and so you have here in uh, 19 and 11, talking about Israel. Israel had primarily, the people of the Jews had primarily rejected Jesus. Um, I, I think it's underestimated sometimes and understated that by the time you get to the 50s, the church is, is moving towards being primarily Gentile. In Rome, it is primarily Gentile, though there are Jewish believers. The further you get away from the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, the further you get away from the Christian movement being predominantly Jewish. Uh, sometimes when people are talking about some of the letters that are written towards the end, they're talking about you know, the appeal to the Jewish, and whether they're written primarily to the Jews or Gentiles. I think people tend to forget that as the gospel moved and moved and moved on in time, it became more and more Gentile. The Jews rejected it more and more. And so you need to realize that he is helping the Gentiles understand that there is still an understanding in place for Jews who will come to Christ at some time. So when we come to the 10th chapter, because there's some very famous verses in here, we need to remember that. So, the chapter also is full of Old Testament quotations. Um, one of the things you see in Paul in the book of Hebrews, you see the same thing, the Hebrew writer and all of the writers, Peter, they all rely on the Old Testament. Scripture is the foundation for their message. So in chapter 10, the first few verses, he talks about, we've already covered that. He ends with verse 4, the Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You come to faith through Christ. Even the Jews have to come to faith through Christ. So in verse 5, he says this, For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. In other words, if you follow the law, 
If that is your basis of righteousness, which Paul, formerly as a Pharisee, would have said, Paul, like the Pharisees of his day, believed you were righteous because you were Jewish, and then you practiced the law of righteousness. Then you are bound to keep all of that law, which you simply cannot do. They could not keep all the righteousness that was there. But he says this, the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. So if you have a righteousness based on the law, then you have to keep that through and through, which you cannot do. But notice the righteousness that is built on faith. And it's an interesting thing that he quotes here. And he's quoting from Isaiah, excuse me, from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11 through 14. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. So the idea then is when you're living life in faith, and, and you're looking, and the Jews were looking for the Messiah who's already come. He says, you cannot ascend into heavens to find the righteousness. Because that has already happened with the coming of Christ. When you have the incarnation of Jesus, when that occurred, then the righteousness of God that is prevalent came to us in Jesus. You cannot ascend into the abyss to bring it up. Because God has already done that. He has already raised Jesus up from the dead. So... You're not waiting for the righteousness to occur. You're not waiting for God to move. He has already done that. He has done that in Jesus, who descended from heaven, and then he ascended from the grave. So he is here with us, and faith understands that. Faith is going to work in that way. So that, or verse 7 he says, so, I mean, verse 8. So what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. So because of Christ, and here, uh, because of who Jesus is, the word is within us. It's near us. It's close to us because of Jesus. So the righteousness which is needed has come to us from Jesus. Which leads then into verse 9, which is continuing in verse 8. And, and I quote verse 9 and 10 quite often. Uh, because they're fundamental verses to salvation. For it says in verse 9, For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with your heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness or justification. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. This is one of the most important concepts in Scripture. Because... When it talks about confessing, the idea of confessing is not just to speak words. We sometimes think of a criminal confessing what he or she may have done. They, they are saying what they did. And there's importance to that. But to confess is to agree with something. The idea of confessing, then, is to agree with something that is true. The idea of confessing in here is to agree with something that has occurred. You confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Now... Jesus, this, this is probably the earliest, what we would call, confession of faith that was experienced in the church. It was the confession, Jesus is Lord. And the idea of Lord is the idea of the one to whom you give yourself. And the Greek word for Lord, it means boss or master in a very general sense. But almost always is connected with Jesus. It is of a technical sense relating back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the word Lord, our English word Lord, is used primarily for the name of the Lord, Yahweh. So uh, Yahweh, which was the name that God gave him, called himself, means I am who I am. 
was the covenant name, the relationship name he had with the Jewish people. And so to call upon the Lord is to call upon God in a personal way. It was a personal connection. So to confess that Jesus is Lord is to confess that he is God. But it's not just to say that he is God in a general sense. It is to understand that he is God in a very personal connecting way. That he is truly the God and the Lord of all. To be Lord in a religious sense is the one to whom you bow down before and the one to whom you worship and the one to whom you serve. So this is a confession of commitment to worship and service and to recognizing the absolute deity of Jesus Christ. You have to agree that Jesus is Lord. You have to acknowledge that Jesus and he alone is Lord. It's not the action, uh, the action is simply of the words. It's not just that you, you mumble them. Because as we saw last Friday night when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's not just the repetition of the words. It is the understanding of what they mean of commitment to your life. So you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Oftentimes, and uh, throughout Christian history, in baptism services, especially when baptism today, we, and this is understandable in the world we live in, people tend to give their life to Christ. We work with them some or talk to them some, and they get baptized at a later date. Rarely does someone come up, and especially doesn't happen to us at all, because the way we do things, uh, when we're having baptism, you know, they don't, Friday night, last stuff, Thursday, Wednesday night, they didn't walk up during baptism and say, you know, I need to get baptized, I want to give my life to Christ, I want to trust him. But in the old days, they would do that. There was a time, and I say old days, I mean not that long ago, that you might have a baptism service, and, and you would have preaching wherever the baptism was occur, oftentimes a river or a pond or whatever. And you would, you would have preaching, and you would call for an invitation, and the invitation was to come and be baptized. And upon baptizing, they would say to you, you renounce your sins, and you confess that Jesus is Lord. And they would say, yes, I confess that Jesus is Lord, or something to that effect. And, and so they would say that, and they would baptize. So the understanding of that confession is important. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will then be saved. Now, the, the believing in the heart is the, not the emotional place. It is the place of decision. In other words, the heart is the place of your commitment. It is the real you. So you've got to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, sometimes I will preach, and I did this at Christmas too all the time, that, there's, that you don't have to believe certain things in order to be saved. You don't have to believe God created the world to be saved. It doesn't require that. Once you're saved, you should believe that. Don't get me wrong. Though some of you don't get bent out of shape saying that's not important. As the follower of Christ, if you don't believe that God created the world, if you don't believe in the virgin birth of Christ, you have spirit, ser- serious problems that would call me to question salvation. But nowhere does it say you have to believe that in order to be saved. But in order to be saved, it does say you have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Because if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, what is the basis of your salvation? Ultimately, it's on you. So there is something you have to believe. So God raised Jesus from the dead. And all that goes with it, that is critical. So he says, why? Well, you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart. He says, because with your heart... You believe, and it results, it says, in righteousness or justification. In other words, you are right with God. Now, we talked a lot about justification. And righteousness and justification, same word in the, in the Greek. To be justified is to legally be in right standing with God. So, the confession that he is Lord, excuse me, the, confet- the belief that he, that God raised him from the dead, that belief that God raised him from the dead is 
at the moment that you believe that is the moment of justification. God declares you right. Now, we've already seen many times that 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 belief is not something you come up with on your own. You just don't one day say, you know what? I believe God raised Jesus from the dead. It is, and we're going to see more where that comes from in a minute. It is, it is what God does in your life. If we've seen from the sermons the last two weeks out of Ephesians, we're dead in our sins, and we've been made alive in Christ. When God makes us alive in Christ, when faith comes, when he makes us alive in Christ, he justifies us. So you confess, which results in justification. And then you believe, which results in salvation. So faith is connected to our salvation. It is the faith that God gives us. No, notice what it says right after that. For the scripture says in Isaiah 28, 16, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. He's going to save us. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. So the same Lord is Lord of Jew and Greek. Remember, this is in a discussion about what is the place of the Jew in God's economy of salvation. And Paul is saying it's no different for the Jew or Gentile. You have to call upon the name of the Lord. You have to confess and believe. Anyone that teaches that there is going to come a point where Jews or whatever will not actually have to confess in Christ is teaching you what is false. Period. End of story. I don't care the rationale. I don't care how many scriptures they cut and paste. I don't care who teaches that. It is a false teaching. Because scripture says you must confess and believe. And in this passage is talking about the Jews in particular. Which comes to verse 13. Which is a very misunderstood and wrongly applied verse. Quoting from Joel chapter 2. For all who call upon the name of the Lord, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The book of Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches his great message, he quotes from Joel 2 extensively. He quotes this verse, talking about salvation. Anyone who, through what is said in verses 9 and 10, calls upon the name of the Lord, confesses and believes, will be saved. Whosoever will may come. I think there's a hint, like, whosoever surely means me. Oftentimes, we misunderstand that. And we run into a very dangerous place. I, uh, don't, some of you don't get excited by this, and some of you don't panic about this. But I often look, I have sources to see what church in Baptist life is open. Not looking to go anywhere. Some of you got your hopes up for a minute. No, I'm not. This is my question. But I'm always, but I have lots of friends who at places I know where they go, and I have friends sometimes that need to go to churches, and they refer ask me to re- reference them someplace, and so I do that on their behalf, try to find them places to go. And so I was looking on one site, and there's this church, and it, this was kind of, I found this mildly humorous. Uh, you may not find it humorous at all, but I chuckled, and that's all that really mattered to me at this point. In, in their ad, they say. We want someone who is a non-Calvinist but believes whosoever will may come. And I'm like, what in the world is that? I don't, uh, first place, I don't know what Calvin has to do with anything. I've never met anybody who is a Christian of any understanding who doesn't believe that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But we have to understand what that means. And here is the problem. Some people think that that means... That you have the ability on your own at any time you choose to call upon the name of the Lord, which you do not have. 
For two weeks, what have we said on Sunday mornings? We are dead in our trespasses and sins, and dead men tell no tales. Can't do anything. That salvation is the gift of God. Even in our study of Romans, we have clearly seen that. In chapter 9, it was talking about God choosing and choosing and choosing. It's salvation is always the work of God. Don't ever get to the point where you think that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord means that an individual can, outside of God's grace, determine their own salvation. doesn't mean that. He's quoting Joel. He's going to read the context of the passage. He's just spent all this time talking about our sinfulness. He has just said, you have to confess and believe. The ability to do that never comes on our own. Go back to chapter 8. Those he calls, those he predestines, those he chooses, all that's in there. It's all placed upon what God does. I call upon the name of the Lord because God moves me to call upon the name. How many times have you heard someone preach, and I preach all the time, in a sermon, if the Holy Spirit is working in your life and the Holy Spirit is convicting you to give your life to Christ, trust him. I've never said, I don't know anyone that's ever said, hey, listen, if you're sitting there and all of a sudden it just comes upon you, hey, maybe I need to call upon the Lord. Maybe not. I think I'll do it. We don't talk that way. We always give God credit. Have any of you ever seen someone said and said, well, you know, praise you for for getting saved today? We always say praise the Lord, God, Jesus. It's instinctive in the life of a Christian to understand that. So read what follows. And this is what everybody misses when they misquote this. What follows? Verse 14, how will they call on him? Whoever calls upon them will be saved. In whom they have not believed. You can't call on him if you haven't first believed. How can they call if they have not believed? Notice what it says. How will they believe in whom they have not heard or listened? And how will they heal without a preacher? Now that does not mean just me as preacher, but a proclaimer. So just think about this. In order to call out, you have to believe. In order to believe, you have to hear. And hearing requires someone telling. Nobody on their own comes to Jesus. Somebody helps them. Said it last week, Sunday, you know. He, you know, he, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared beforehand that we might walk. And then we are created in Christ to help be involved in other people's lives. So, don't get too technical on this. Somehow, we've got to help people come to Jesus. So, what do I say all the time? I say this all the time. What do I say? Give people to Jesus as fast as you can. Why? Because they can't come to Jesus if no one brings them there. The way God works in his grace is that he saves us in his grace. And in his grace, through faith, he saves us. And then he uses us to help other people experience the same thing. Notice what he says in verse 15. He is quoting Isaiah 52, uh, 7. How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good 
news of good things. So how will they go unless they're sent? Which implies this, we're sent. So you're saved, you're sent so you can preach, so that people will hear, so that people will believe, and they will call the name of the Lord. No one calls on the name of the Lord on their own. There is a God-driven process that he directs. Notice what he says then about the Jews in verse 16. It's a quotation from Isaiah 53.1. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Now, Isaiah, 600 years before Jesus, actually more than 600, 700, I said 600, I was really wrong, about 700 in um, 30, 40 years before Jesus. He says, how will they believe? They, they, they refuse to believe because they reject our report. Notice what Paul says here. Faith comes in from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and, and hearing by the word of Christ. The focus of all that is Christ. The word which is from and about Jesus. You cannot separate faith from Jesus. From the message, the calling, the work of Jesus. That's why we praise the Lord. That's why we praise Jesus. We understand what he's done in our life. And so I have faith. Why do I have faith? Well, I've heard the message. And when I heard the message, Jesus working in my life moved me to faith. I don't remember ever seeing someone just come to the church or come to me or any other ministers on their own and just walk up cold turkey and say, you know, I was just walking down the street, driving by your church, decided to give my life to Christ. It just hit me. Unless, some, unless someone had been previously working. If you say, has anybody talked to you? No, never heard. Of, no one ever taught me a thing about it. Never heard. I don't know anything about Jesus. Never heard read anything from the Bible. No one ever preached to me. No one ever heard taught me the Bible. No one ever said something to me. I just decided I'm going to give my life to Christ. Never heard of it happening. And if somebody says, well, I have, I'm going to call you out on that one. It may have happened, but not with you. Here's the thing. There is Christ sends us out to share the gospel. Because without that gospel, people will never have faith in Jesus. So, verse 18. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? So Simon said, they have never heard the gospel. How could they hear? Paul says, Psalm 19.4, their voice has gone out into all the earth. And their words to the ends of the world. See, verse 19, but I say, surely Israel does not know, did they? He says, first Moses says, quotes Deuteronomy 32, 21. I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. And so in other words, he's saying the Jewish people had all the advantages that Gentiles never had. Because throughout their history, God has been preparing them for the Christ. He has been telling them. They believe in the coming of Messiah. 
Jesus fought all the time about people who were questioning he was the Messiah or said you can't be the Messiah because he didn't fit their expectations. At the time of Paul, there was a great expectation a Messiah was coming. They just missed out on it because they wouldn't believe. They have no excuse. He says the Gentile, in other words, another nation without any understanding has made them jealous. The Gentiles have made the Jews jealous. And part of the reason that Jews began rejecting Jesus is because the Gentiles were accepting him. They don't want any part of that. So Isaiah is very bold. Quoting Isaiah 65.1. I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest or known to those who did not ask for me. So here's what he's saying. He's, he's writing to the Romans, primarily Jewish, I mean Gentile believers about the Jews, and he's saying that you as, as Greeks, as Gentiles, you found him, you were not seeking him. The Jews were seeking the Messiah and never found him. He was found by the Gentiles. Now think about this. When we give ourselves too much credit for our salvation, how do we give ourselves credit for our salvation when we were never seeking him to begin with? Most people I know that are lost, I know quite a few, they may have some religious inclination, some faith thing, they may know some things about God. Most of them are pretty sad. They're my age, the friends that are my age, you know, 45, 46, my age. Most of them are very satisfied in their losses. They may not be satisfied in life. They may be missing, they may be hurting, they may be yearning. But too many times I've encountered them, they have no spiritual hunger. They're not seeking God. I have to, God is going to use me to help generate that hunger. He's going to use me to help them realize they need him. Because left on their own, they will not seek God. They may seek stuff. They may want to find, you know, some spiritual awareness. They're not going to seek Christ. <laughs> you know, you hear all the time about different people, you know, being, you know, you read about some celebrity or some athlete or somebody in their, in their spiritual life. And I'm always curious when I read someone about someone who's very spiritual. That's almost a code word. I almost know right away what it means. They're not a Christian. They're seeking stuff, but never Jesus. Because Christians tend to say, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of God, a follower of Christ. Even nominal Christians tend to use that. People on their own simply don't seek. Unless there is somebody to help them that God uses to help them seek. So in verse 21. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long, as Isaiah 65 two, God is saying this, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a distant, to a disobedient and obstinate people. I mean, I, I've stretched out my hands to my people and, and they're disobedient and obstinate. This is the people of Israel. Now, we're going to see, you know, over the weeks to come in chapter 11 about they will come to faith. But the, the people of Israel, Paul is saying, are in a place of disobedience and being obstinate. Now, what we need to understand in the world we live in, and I, I come from, you know, from Texas where, where you know, you're in the, where the Baba Belt, and we always, Texas, you know, most, you know what I know about Texans? Texans like to brag a lot. We're good at bragging. We brag about our bragging. We're really good about that. And in Texas, because we are such a heavily, you know, uh, 
large today with a lot of Christian folks. We like to be about the, the buckle on the Bible belt. I know people like Georgia say they're the buckle on the Bible belt. That's a small buckle. Texas is a big old Texas size buckle. And all around, whether it be through Catholicism or whether it be because there are a lot of Baptists and, and uh, Evangelicals and Pentecostals, uh, there are a lot of people who are aware of Jesus to some degree. When I left, uh, being from South Texas, but when I left North Texas to come here, I, I didn't meet many people in North Texas and in, in, in Bridgeport and Wise County who weren't connected to a church somewhere. All of them were. But most of them were far from Christ. You know, there's a danger in being so surrounded by Christianity, religion, whatever, that you become immune to the truth of it. And people just assume, and you just assume, you know, you're okay. I can't tell you the number of people I've met in my life. I've said this all the time. People who would say to me, I'm a member of your church. I mean, I'm like, I've never seen you. How, I mean, this is in Bridgeport, not here. I mean, I've never seen you. How, how, it wasn't that big a church. You know, I mean, it was, you know, 150, 200 every Sunday. Eventually, I'm going to see you show up once in a while. You could come here and happen. So people say, I come to your church. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. Here it's easy because so many people come through the door. But there, and, and, you know, and they, were, they were immune to Christ. They were disobedient, were obstinate. They thought everything was okay. And this is the reason we continually preach and teach the truth of Jesus even on Sunday mornings to a crowd that's predominantly members or attenders. We always preach that. Hey, you always need to hear it. There's never a time you don't need to hear the gospel. But the the reason is because people can become so immune to truth. All we can do is keep trying to find ways to help them because we have to, and this is what's important, we have to trust that at some point God will take what we share and will penetrate their life with that truth. It's, it is not our task to make sure people come to Jesus. It is our task to help them, I mean, to become followers of Christ. It is our task to see that they encounter Jesus. I'll never forget the guy told me one time about all the people he went to the Lord. I just, I was too young, I mean, when I was young, I was brash and a little cocky, but I didn't always speak my mind like I tend to do now. Because today when you come and tell me how many people you win to Christ, I'm going to tell you, you haven't won a cotton-picking person to Christ in your life. The Holy Spirit wins people to Jesus. We share Jesus. That's our task. And so what this is saying, Paul is reminding us, that while the Jews have moved away from Christ, and we're going to see that eventually they'll come back, there is at the same time a path to Jesus. It is not our path. It is God's path. And God's path requires us to share Jesus with people so they may come to Jesus. And our responsibility is to help them see that path and trust that God in his grace will move them to salvation.